And yet, the Mission Impossible always had this mission that was almost impossible because they always did it. So I don't even know how they did that title, Mission Impossible, but they did the mission. But it was always about some villain, some dark thing that was going on. And so, you know, here, here's this mission. Well, we have our own mission, and our mission is connected to Jesus. Um, a few years ago, everybody started having a mission statement, from restaurants to businesses and then to churches. I remember when our team went to uh, some uh, uh, classes and we were stressing, what, what is our focus? And we came up with our mission statement in three words. Reach, train, and sin. And that challenge to that mission is to do the entire cycle of discipleship. Now, you're going to see a different video, not like this. So, if any are offended by that, I'm sorry. But, but in a little over a month, we're going to have the launch of something that's just loaded with mission emphasis. Um, you'll see a video every Sunday leading up to February the 26th. And um, unlike what that title is, it's Mission Made Possible Through the Person of Jesus Christ. And there's no mistake about what his mission is all about. Some of the songs and the lyrics, uh, the enemy has to flee at the sound of his great name. And his mission is the exclamation mark that governs our lives. His death and resurrection is what Christianity boils down to. It doesn't boil down to anything other than Jesus died and was raised from the dead. I'm going to take you to the book of Hezekiah. If you'll turn there. I was just, <laughs> I'm sorry, I was influenced by that Sunday school class. There's no book of Hezekiah, by the way. But there is a book, The Gospel According to Luke. You know, I wasn't even going to do that until I saw that class. Luke chapter 19, if you will, turn there with me. Because Jesus, you'll find his personal mission statement in this chapter. And you don't have to read very far into this chapter until you discover the mission statement that Jesus has for his own life, his own purpose, what he's about. Uh, this is a familiar story. We're going to take a little bit different look at it today. Um, last Sunday was Peter in the boat, and of course, you can just think about all the nuances of that experience that Peter had. Well, we're going to look at what exactly was going on with Zacchaeus. Luke 19, let's just start with verse 1. Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Remember that nothing that Luke writes is incidental. There's a reason why he mentions Jericho. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was the chief among the publicans. And he was rich. We already don't like him. And he sought to see Jesus, who he was. And could not for the press, the crowd, because he was little of stature. And he ran before, you don't see many wealthy people running. He ran before and he climbed up a sycamore tree. You don't see many wealthy people running to climb up a tree. But he did all this to see him, to see Jesus. For he was to pass that way where Zacchaeus was. 
And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must abide at thy house. And he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, the people in the crowd saw it, they all murmured, saying that he was gone to be guest with a man that is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. Jesus said to him, This day is salvation come to this house, for as much as he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. That is Jesus' personal mission statement. He said salvation, the whole work of God to redeem and restore people, is coming to this house, Zacchaeus' house, today. And isn't that what we want for families and homes? I mean, we wouldn't be launching what we're doing February the 26th if we did not have a sense of responsibility that God has placed upon us His mission. And I was just, I was standing here during worship time and it just, it just hit me again. What an, how privileged I am to stand in front of you. Uh, I'm always nervous. Are you nervous? I'm always nervous. And I think I'd get worried if I wasn't nervous. When we handle God's stuff, we ought to be concerned about how we handle it. When we're in his house, this this is a house of worship. This is a place where we congregate to worship the Lord. Um, It's not the the ceiling, the brick, or the block, or the carpet, or the the seats. It's the purpose of this building. And I... Every time I come in here and step up on this platform, there's some trepidation in me because I'm handling something that belongs to him. And who doesn't want to handle that right? How about the mission that God has given to us? How we handle that? Jesus stated his mission statement in that setting, and I don't think it's coincidental that it's in that setting that he makes this statement. In, in another passage in John, he says, The thief comes not but to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come for what? That you might have life and have it in abundance. But this is a more clear mission statement. So the Son of Man, his very purpose, his very mission is to come to seek and to save that which is lost. I want you to notice something about this little incident. And you want to jot some of these things down. The salvation of God starts with a person. I'm talking about not from the saving standpoint, from being saved. Isn't it interesting how many things happen that's recorded in the Bible that Jesus is one-on-one with people? Here he is one-on-one with this man. Starts with him. Now, people may come to the Lord as a group, as a crusade like Billy Graham, like the Great Crusades. But each of those people who are coming are coming out of their own experience, are they not? And we don't know what's going on in, in each person's life. Are, are they being moved by the crowd? Are they being moved by the speaker or by the song? Are they genuinely know that they're suddenly in need of God's salvation and, 
And they're coming as a response to him personally, not to the group, not to the preacher on the platform, not to the choir that is singing. They're coming to kneel at the feet of Jesus. And aren't people looking for peace in their life and for fulfillment in their life? Here he is. Here's Zacchaeus. He is a rich man. I I just kind of stopped and said, you know, how easy it is to not like rich people. But he's a rich man, and he is the most, one of the most despised people in this community. Because not only is he a rich man, it's how he became rich. He is an underground IRS agent collecting taxes for the Roman government. You can't get any worse than that. Because the way they got wealthy was they kept some of it for themselves. And everybody knew that. Everybody knew that this little guy was a crook. He was a scoundrel. They didn't like him. They didn't want to make any room for him. So when you see it, rich people don't climb trees. Something's going on with this guy. Something's going on. He's running to the tree to climb up to the tree so that he can see Jesus. And guess what? If he's at a level where he can see Jesus, guess who can see him? Jesus. And he spots him. And remember this, that Jesus called one of his disciples from that vocation. He went to a tax office where Matthew was collecting taxes for the Roman government. This was not for temple support. This is for the support of the Roman government. It was was a horrific thing for people to have to do that. And he calls Matthew out of that. So this little man, despised by the common populace, nobody likes him. He's high enough in this tree, and Jesus approaches him, and this is what the Lord says to him. Come down, Zacchaeus, now. Hurry up. And he does something that uh, we're told not to do. He invites himself to his house. Today, I'm, I'm going to your house. And he's all excited. And I want you to see something about all of this because Zacchaeus says something. But when that happens, look at verse 7. When this exchange is going on, the people hear all of this and they murmur saying, can I paraphrase it? I can't believe he's going to that guy's house. What a sorry little guy. What a crook. Here's a celebrity passing through our region And who does he choose to go home to? Him. There's like 99% of other people in this place that deserves the attention of Jesus, but not that guy. Because he's a sinner. A dreadful sinner. What is Jesus thinking? And he says, today I'm coming to your house. In fact, in today's language, they'd be throwing all kinds of adjectives at this guy beginning with the most popular one you hear nowadays is narcissistic. That's, that's, the, that's the cover for anybody that's, doing, that's wrong or bad. Just call it narcissistic. And then you can add all the other stuff that they call people today. This is what he would have been said. Don't hang out with him. Don't have anything to do with him. He's an evil person. And right then, two things happen after verse 7. Here's what I want you to follow with me. Two dynamic things happen right here. And 
It's responsive. Zacchaeus to what was said in verse 7. Remember, these two things are said after the crowd around them is saying, that sorry little guy? Here's what Zacchaeus says. He stood and said, Lord, behold, half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. Now I want you to look at that. Is this something he said he's going to do in the future, or is it, what is, how does he word this? Do you think something already is going on in this guy's life? He's been under conviction somewhere. And think about it. Let's go back to the very first verse. Where are they at? Jericho. Okay, who's prominent in Jericho? Who was prominent in Jericho because he always was preaching there, and it's where he held his baptismal services, including the day he baptized Jesus. So somewhere along the way, this little crook has had an encounter with God. Because <laughs> he doesn't tell, he doesn't come under conviction right then. It even shows us by what he did to just see Jesus that something positive is going on in his life. He is attracted to him. He knows what that man stands for. He wants to know more about him because it's obvious that God is already moving in his life. And he says, I've decided to pay back people that I took from. I've decided to make things right. And I decided that 50% of what I make, I'm giving back to the poor people in the community. But that's not what people said about him, was it? That little weasel is, is a crook. <laughs> He's a sinner. Now listen to the response of Jesus. I think both of them are responding to what people are saying. In verse 9, Jesus says this. This day, salvation has come to this house for as much as he also is a son of Abraham. Let's stop right there because verse 10 is, is his mission statement. Let's just look at verse 9 with me. Salvation has come to this house because this man has worth before God. This man has this man has God's eyes upon him because he is a son of Abraham. You see, I think what was going on here was the people that looked at Jesus had a different mission statement for Jesus. If you're really going to be the Messiah, kick the Romans out and reestablish Israeli self-governance. That's the way, that's the Messiah they're looking for. It's not a Messiah that came to die on the cross for their sins. That's not the Messiah in their thinking. Their Messiah was someone who's going to come, lead a revolt against Rome, reestablish Israel's identity, and things are going to be so much like it was under King David. That's what they were looking for. And yet Jesus says, this man is a son of Abraham. It's kind of interesting that probably all these people looking down on him called themselves children of Abraham, but they didn't think he was. And Jesus said, oh yeah, he has just as much right to the grace of God and to the salvation of God as any of you. And then he makes that mission statement. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. You see, Jesus is really the hero here. He's the one who's come to rescue. This is his mission. Salvation means this. It means to restore, redeem, heal, mend, rescue, all of those ideas. When someone saves somebody's life, 
they've either ran into a burning house or dove into the water, done something courageous to put themselves in danger so that they can rescue someone. Jesus came in that environment to take on the evil world that this world was enveloped in, still enveloped in, and to intersect it with salvation. Look at the word for lost. If you look this word up, it's an interesting word. You know, you can be lost. You can be lost, let's say, um, you can be lost some places in Tuscaloosa County. Or you can be lost, let me just put this in perspective. You can be lost in the swamp where John C. hunts. It's a swamp. How that man knows where to go, I'll never know. But it's just everything looks the same. And you can be lost. But you're not really lost. You just don't know where you're at. But the loss that is used here has these kind of connotations to it. It means to be destroyed. It means to be ruined, abolished, and end. It means to render useless, to kill, to declare that someone must be put to death. It is a graphic word. And metaphorically, it means to devote or give over to eternal misery and hell, to perish, to be lost, ruined, destroyed. Jesus said, I have come to rescue those who are destined for that. The mission of one, to rescue those. Jesus came to seek and to save those ravished by the enemy. And when he, and when he came out of the water, think about this. When Jesus came up out of the water, John baptized, his clothes weren't even dry yet. That he was up in a mountain wilderness dueling with the devil for 40 days. I mean, combat. 40 days. We've just given three things that the enemy throws at him. But actually that carried on for 40 days. He had nothing to drink, nothing to eat. And before he even launched his first message, healed the first person diseased, turned water into wine, did any of his miracles. He spent 40 days confronting the evil one. And it's like C.S. Lewis said, that there is an enemy-occupied territory that Jesus came in to sabotage. And he calls all of us to join in that sabotage. And here he is taking on, the devil says, if you're really hungry, guess what? You have the power to turn these rocks into bread. No, you're hungry. You can do that. You have the power to do that. He basically said, no thanks. That's not what man lives only on. Man has to live on the word of God. And I think in his mind, he might have been thinking, that's okay. In a few days, I'm going to be turning water to wine. I'm not going to jumpstart my miracle because you're challenging me. I'm not going to do any shortcuts. And isn't that where we get lost sometimes is trying shortcuts? When I moved to Lakeland, I'm, a, I'm like an Alabama country kid. That If you want to go north, you just find a road and go north. Or if you want to go south, you'll reach wherever you're going, going south. Not in Lakeland because you'll turn up on a lake somewhere, riding around the lake. And then you're like, where... Which road is I supposed to turn off? When Jesus comes, he gives us direction. And, if, and, if, and when we get lost, when we get off course, is when we try to take shortcuts. And that's all the devil was doing with him. 
Well, you, can, you can shortcut. You've you got power to do this. I'm reading Pilgrim's Progress. I know it's late in my life for me to read it, but I am reading it. And I got the audio on it, and I've even played some of it from Brenda. I said, listen to this. I didn't know that one of these guys was from Australia. I'm just kidding. But I says, but Christian, all along the way, he's supposed to stay on this road to the celestial city, and everywhere he goes, there's this element, this evil, dark element compelling him. There's an easier way to, to get to the celestial city. Why don't you go this way? It doesn't have near the danger. And all the efforts of the evil one around him is to get him off into a shortcut. Isn't that the way the devil works? And then he tells Jesus this. Um, why don't you climb up on the temple roof and jump off? Because the Lord said in his word that he will protect you. You remember what Jesus said? Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Now, what was that about? Why did the devil throw that out there? Because there was this idea that when the Messiah would show up, he would do miraculous things. And how miraculous is it just to be Superman? Fly off the top of a building and impress everyone. And for self-promotion, everybody will believe, hey, Messiah's come. And again, it was a shortcut. Make no bones about it. Everything the devil was putting in front of Jesus was not an actual confrontation of his mission. It was to get him to do his mission differently. And that's the subtlety of the evil one. It's not that he's going to be uh, this, um, what people think has got a horn and horns and a, a red cape and all of this. He does not come to us that way. He appears as an angel of light. And his temptations are subtle to try to convince you to take an easier way. And the last thing he did was show Jesus all the kingdoms of the earth. And says, we can conclude this battle right here. This is what you came to save, right? You came to save all of this, right? That's your mission. We, you just said it. You know, that's your mission. And Jesus said, no. Well, you know what he said? It is written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. And he says, you know what? My worship is reserved for my father. But anyway, I'm going to get those kingdoms without your help. I've come to sabotage who you are and your power. And this is the interesting thing. When we join up with Christ, when we make that journey to kneel at his feet and in a reality to say, Lord, forgive me of my sins. I want you to be the Lord and master of my life. And we've tasted of the sweetness of grace. Where we can sing that old gospel song, My sins are gone. They're underneath the blood of the cross of Calvary. We can get up and say, My sins are gone. I'm redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And when we walk away from that decision, we become emissaries of His mission. We don't have a different mission. No matter what you do in your journey, it's connected to his mission. Larry used to have a sign up at his office in Jackson. And the sign was this, you're either a missionary or a mission field. There's no in-between. 
You know, there was a popular theology that started up in the late 1800s. And this was the theology. It was called amillennialism, meaning that there was not a literal thousand-year reign of Christ, that it was figurative, and that the reign of Christ would come through his church and the influence of his church. And the influence of his church would make the world so wonderful that that's the reign of Christ, that he wouldn't have to literally come back and physically be on the earth. The church was going to introduce the kingdom of God. Well, there was a particular assassination that took place that launched us into World War I, and I don't think many people believe that anymore. Because World War I led into World War II. And the Hitlers of the world, he was a principal part of World War I. In fact, that's what launched World War II. And then the Korean War, the Vietnam War. And look at what's going on today. Do you think today that we're just going to influence the world to where Jesus doesn't have to come back? Are we looking at at what's going on wide-eyed and realizing that we really do need him to come back? We live in such a dangerous world. You might not even realize this, but if you tend, attend a home football game at Bryant-Denny Stadium, you have no idea what happens before the first person comes to the gate. How that stadium is swept for any problems. There's undercover people everywhere. There's, all, there's more law, law enforcement people there that, that I think people would be stunned at how much security is in that stadium. There's air traffic controlling. There's everything. Are there going to be any drones in the air? They're they're thinking of every possible... And there's snipers somewhere. All because of the world we live in. Are we really so, you know, oblivious to what our world is like that we really think that this is going to happen on its own? The only way people are brought in out of that environment is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Where we accept him and he enters our soul and he breaks off the dread of this life and gives us peace even though we're looking at a lot of stuff out there in a dangerous world we live in. Thank God for our intel agencies. Thank God for all those people that are listening, watching, looking, observing, checking things out. We, give, we live every day in a pretty, pretty secure environment, don't we? We have no idea how many people help us to live secure. But the reality is this. Jesus is going to stop at trees that people have climbed up in that want to get a look at him. And he's going to say, today we get connected. And that's what coming to the altar is all about. That's what coming to Christ is all about. That's what, that's what we need to say to him is, Lord, I surrender my life to you. There's not going to be any peace in my life until I allow you to possess my soul and place your spirit inside of me. Take away my sin. Break sin's bondage over me. We don't have to have horrible addictions to be in bondage. But we need Jesus. Would you stand with me? I want to pray, and I want to pray... For anyone here that's, you know the truth, you know the reality, 
And the worst thing that the enemy, listen, listen to me. What the devil wants to make people think is that it won't work for them. It just won't work for them. That they can't live up to it. They can't follow through. They, they don't have confidence. And this is why you need him. Who can live this on their own? Nobody can. So, Lord, I pray right now for those who are in this room that have kind of been in this place of decision, knowing the truth but hedging a little bit because they're not sure if they can follow through. I, I pray for that man, for that woman, Lord, that you have placed, you've stood right in front of them like you did Zacchaeus. And you're saying, today salvation has come to you. Today I want to connect to you. Today I want to fill your life, your house with my salvation. Lord, I, I pray that as we come to this altar today that we are either recommitting ourselves to your mission and not just sitting as a neutral observer, but finally stepping into the fray, into the struggle, into the battle, whether it's reaching millennials or older generations, our children, our teenagers, you have called us in some way, Lord, to step into the struggle, the battle for the souls of people, to take on the dark forces of our world, and to be people of prayer and action, not just a, a statement of reach, train, sin, but action, Lord, to reach them, to disciple them, and to empower them for ministry. I pray, Lord, that that's not just a statement that we put on our website or in a bulletin, but that we actually live that, that we actually embrace that as our challenge today, that that's your mission, and you want us to be part of your mission. And if that's your decision, I want you to come as this plays, come to the altar.